Good day, and welcome to the United for the Messiah podcast. My name is Edward Davies, and today I will be presenting my Bible study on James chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. As I mentioned in my last podcast, I initially planned to go through chapter 5 in one go, but I realized there are two possible outcomes if I do it that way. And both I don't think is fair on myself or my listeners. So the first option is to superficially go over the chapter. But I will be doing us a disservice because scripture is so rich. And the second option is to go through the same level of detail um, as I've been doing in my previous podcast, but then still do it in one podcast. But this then will result in a podcast episode being probably well over two hours long. And I believe very few people will actually even attempt to, (laughs) to listen to that. So... Let's get back into to James chapter 5. Now as a way of recap, in James 5 verses 1 to 6, James dealt with the issue of wicked rich people. The portion of scripture itself was a scathing warning to the people who put their trust and in essence they dedicated their lives to accumulating riches. When we looked at this we realized that this parallels Jesus' words in Matthew 6 verse 20, 21 where he said, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The issue therefore was addressed by James, not because they were rich, but rather because they were blessed with riches, and they decided to hoard it, they kept back wages from people, they stored up in excess of what they required, plus they used the influence of society for corruption, and also to falsely accuse faithful believers that had little to no influence in society. So in essence they made their their wealth, their God, and I put God here with a small g. Instead of following the true living God and focusing on accumulating treasure in heaven, they put their faith in their wealth. And we we explored this topic, and earthly treasure, as we all know, it will fade. Everything on earth either fades or corrupts. So it will corrode and it will perish over time in any case. But we know the promise that the heavenly treasure will remain for all eternity. And at the end of the day, the rich will be judged according to their works. And this is described in Revelation 20 verse 12. And this judgment is called the great white throne judgment. On the other hand, we found that and and we know that born again believers will be rewarded according to the good they have done for the Lord while on earth. And this is described in Revelation 22 verse 12. This kind of judgment is called the Bema judgment. So once again, Jesus said it best. It's an issue of the heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So before we start today's Bible study, in whichever category a person listening to this podcast or reading this piece of scripture falls, either if you're rich and unsaved or a believer that has been blessed with resources, but for some reason doing anything as described by James, you know, as being one of the evil things the uh, the wicked rich people do. If you find yourself in any of these categories, the good news is that it's not too late for you to repent and turn to God, either for the first time or to return to God and place Him first. Romans 10 verse 13 says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a promise. And we know that God is faithful and keeps His promises.
Okay, so now having some context of the preceding passage of Scripture in James, uh, which we dealt with last week, James continues in verse 7. So let's have a look at James chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. And I'm reading. The, the, the heading of this passage in the New King James Version Bible is Be Patient and Persevering. So starting at verse 7. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job, and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. So in the first five verses that we just read, James is encouraging believers to be patient, and to patiently endure suffering and persecution, until the day the Lord Jesus Christ will return to earth. And he's basically take, talking about his second coming. This is the crux of the passage. But let's look at it and consider the verses individually to see what else we can learn from this passage. So let's start at the first part of verse 7. And I read, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The word therefore, as we've learned in the English language uh, in school, is that it is a conjunctive adverb. It simply means that it joins one thought to another. And I've heard a, a much more eloquent and simpler way that other pastors have explained this in the past. And they said, if, if there's a word therefore in scripture, you have to stop and ask yourself what it is there for. And I like that explanation. And I would like to draw your attention to it as well. Whenever you see the word therefore, look why it's therefore, look at the preceding uh, passage, and read the next part of uh, scripture in context. It's following a thought of the, of the writer. So James is telling his fellow believers in Christ to be patient and endure the things. Now these things he's probably referring to the things described in the first six verses of the chapter that we dealt with last week such as the oppression and suffering under the ungodly rich until the day of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at the rest of verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. So this illustration given here is something that most of us can relate to, at least visualize. We've probably seen this on TV or we've experienced ourselves um, some people may have even played games on it some farm and, and those type of things um, but even when a farmer cannot yet see any fruit he still patiently and diligently works in expectation of the com coming harvest farmers do this even today but they do this even when the crops are late and they cannot see anything at all they they have to have faith in this process this natural process 
And this is something that we as believers should remember as encouragement in our own individual ministries. And yes, I just want to add a, a side note here. You, if you are a born-again believer, you have a ministry. It just depends on how faithful you've been to your calling. And I know I was unfaithful to my calling for a long time. But thankfully God is very patient with us. So I will encourage you, if you are a born-again believer, search out what God's ministry in your life is. And God will bless you if you are faithful to His calling. Now let's return from this little, little sidetrack. Um, in the same way as farmers are patient, Christians should work hard in the mission field. God has entrusted to each one of us, even if we cannot see any of the fruits at, at this stage. So another personal example from my own life. For some may know and some may not know, my wife was not a believer for a long time and she didn't come to the Lord until very recently. So myself, as well as the congregation I worship with, we, we prayed for her to come to the Lord for a good couple of years. And I, as a, as, a, you know, as a human being, I could not see the work the Lord was doing in her heart, but I had no choice but to patiently and diligently persevere and trust in the Lord. Kept on praying, the congregation kept on praying, the elders kept on praying, and I mean all the prayers over many years for her salvation was eventually answered. But it took a long time, and I could have easily given up. So therefore, I will encourage you, be patient and endure, and do not lose confidence in the Lord. And this is exactly the message James is trying to bring across to us. So what is this waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain? What does this mean? So there are some that believe that there is an allegorical meaning to this early and latter rain. They related to an early and a latter outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is called a latter rain theology. And I'm only mentioning it because some in the hyper-Pentecostal movement believes that there's another distinctive outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the last days. To explain some of the things happening in, it, in these churches today. But we do not see this elsewhere in scripture. So for those interested in it, you can take this up as a study for yourselves. But this view is unfortunately, in my opinion, not supported by many verses. And the verses that are used to support this view itself, they, itself, they themselves have to be interpreted figuratively to shape this view. Therefore, I hold the view that James is talking about, the actual rain pattern, which makes more sense. And, and, I'll, and I'll explain this. So most commentaries agree that James is talking about the literal rain pattern in Israel. They used to receive early rain in October and November, which would prepare the ground for seed. And once again, this is this is quite a, a logical and, and something this is quite a logical phenomenon, and we actually have seen this before, even in our own gardens and our own lives. The latter rain then in late April or May were essential for maturing crops before the harvest. So the general idea of this verse is to convey the message that we should be patient in living out God's will for our lives. We should wait for the things to develop themselves in this proper season of our lives. And I can't help but think of Ecclesiastes uh, 3 verse 1 to 8, which puts these seasons into words. And I would like to read it to you, since I believe it describes it so eloquently. And I read, 
To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. So, what this writer is trying to, to tell us is that we should again not be impatient. We can expect just as natural crops in, on this earth, just as they eventually ripen, that our spiritual harvest will ripen in the right time as set by God. We have to trust God. God knows the end from the beginning. And we need to trust His ways and just be diligent be disciplined and that's where the uh, the word disciple uh, comes from from discipline we have to be disciplined in our lives in following Christ and setting out to do the mission that he gave us to make disciples of all nations and baptize everyone in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit so let's look at verse 8 now you also be patient Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So what does it mean to establish our hearts? It means that we should have our hearts rooted in Jesus Christ. We need to have faith and trust in God's eternal plan. In Romans 8 verse 28 it reads, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. So, if we look at the, the section of scripture that says, For the coming of the Lord is at hand. This talks to having an expectation that Jesus can return at any time. Every Christian since the beginning should have an earnest expectation that Jesus will return or could return at any time. And we in our personal lives and even in this church age, in, in this age that we're living in, have become so complacent and I don't think we do really do believe anymore and and we don't live with this endless expectation of his imminent return when you look at the times we live in today we can certainly see that our generation fits the, the description of end times prophecies as given in the bible the best of all the generations preceding us but i think we're also so comfortable in our earthly possessions in our comfort that we've got we've got electricity running water we've got every kind of appliance that will make our life so easy um, if we don't go through suffering and uh, tribulation or periods in our lives it's very easy for us to get so complacent and almost think that you know the Lord can come in five years time or so you know and therefore we need to have an earnest expectation that the Lord will return at any time so let's look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. 
So do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Brethren here, James is, is writing to fellow believers. He is quite plainly saying that they should not grumble against each other. Otherwise they will themselves be condemned by the Lord Jesus Christ. The word grumble can also be translated as groan, sigh and murmur. Therefore condemned can also be translated as judged against. So they can be judged against, you know, so they can be judged against by the Lord for what they've been doing um, against other people. So how should we rather act then amongst believers in time of suffering and trials? So I believe Paul gives us a good answer in Ephesians 4 verse 1 to 3. And I read this passage to you. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I cannot say this any better. So let's go on to the next section. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Again, James is telling the believers, the Lord's coming is at hand. It's very close. We need to make sure that we won't be caught sleeping when Jesus returns. We should be ready at all times. We should be living a life in obedience to Jesus. The early church lived in such an expectation of Jesus that they used the phrase Maranatha, which is uh, the Greek spelling for two, Arama uh, two Aramaic words. It means our Lord come, or it can be translated, O Lord come. That's the expectation we should be living by. And like I said, Unfortunately, this expectation is not so evident today. And we need to conform our lives in such a way to the Word of God that we live in expectation of Jesus returning at any time. Because that was the promise. He can return at any time. So now let's continue with verse 10 and 11. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So we know that James's audience to whom he is writing was a Jews who accepted Jesus Christ as their Messiah. They had a very good knowledge of the prophets in the Old Testament as we know it today. Or in those days it was called the Tanakh. It was a Hebrew abbreviation of three Hebrew terms, which can be translated today in English as the Torah, the Prophets and the Writings. We know that the Prophets in the Old Testament age suffered heavy persecution, and I'm sure many of you know this, but I will go over a few examples from the Bible nonetheless, just to paint the picture for this uh, passage of Scripture. The first one I will mention is Jeremiah. He was put in stocks, and we can read this in Jeremiah 20 verse 2. He was thrown into prison in Jeremiah 32 verse 3, and he was lowered into a miry dungeon in Jeremiah 28 verse 6. He however persisted and patiently endured during his ministry. We know that Jezebel, the wife of King Ahab, had many prophets killed. We read this in 2 Kings 9 verse 7. And I know my wife personally finds this interaction between Jezebel, Ahab, and the prophet Elijah quite fascinating. But uh, 
I'll leave that for, for another time. But it's a fascinating story. And Elijah had also to endure a lot of uh, suffering. And, and we'll get to that now. No. Now we have Stephen in the New Testament. Firstly, they killed Stephen after he gave his testimony. Uh, so I believe you can count, you can number him with the prophets of the Old Testament as well as everyone who had ever been persecuted for speaking in the name of the Lord. But in his gospel account, he gave before he was stoned to death. In Acts 7 verse 52, he also mentions the fact that the Lord's prophets were persecuted. And so let's read this verse. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. So he's talking about the prophets who suffered while speaking in the name of the Lord, prophets who spoke on behalf of God. So as you've seen, these prophets had to add a lot of patience and endurance. Again, if we look at Elijah, during the time of the drought, that drought of three and a half years that's mentioned, he had to go hide in the Kerith ravine, east of the Jordan. Ravens had to bring him meat and bread in the morning and evening, and he had to drink water from the brook. <laughs> he had to stay there for, for the most part of, it's almost like being in a prison. Um, he had to be very patient and trust in the Lord here. And we also know that, I mean, he, he suffered and endured over his, comp his entire ministry. So this this uh, exercise of patience and endurance and having faith in the Lord we should adopt in our lives as well. So let's continue and look at the first part of verse 11. Indeed we count them blessed who endured. James tells us that those believers that endured trials and suffering will be blessed. What he is not ever saying in any way is that believers will be blessed in this life on earth. I believe he is again referring to our eternal rewards, our treasure in heaven. In Revelation 2 verse 10 we read, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may have, sorry, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. So now I'm going to take a little bit of a detour at this stage because <laughs> we read about the crown of life just now and I've been talking about eternal rewards in uh, the previous uh, podcast and in this podcast and there's a couple of crowns promised and talked about in scripture and I would like to look at this now. There are at least five crowns mentioned in scripture and there could be more but we don't know. I mean, there could be more in heaven, um, not in scripture, but we don't know. We also know that when the prophets normally spoke about heaven, they usually used the limited vocabulary of men to describe the scenes and things uh, they saw in heaven, for which we really don't have any understanding. We therefore really don't know what these crowns actually are, and perhaps there are actual crowns. But nonetheless, there are rewards for faithful endurance in different areas of our Christian walks. So let's look at the different crowns talked about in the Bible. Remember in the previous time, before we go to the crowns now, remember I said that I don't believe from Scripture, I can't see it from Scripture that you can lose your salvation. 
uh, I believe once you are saved, God's got you in His hands, and no one can uh, pull you away from God. However, I believe you can lose the rewards, and this is exactly what James is harping on about in his epistle. But let's look at the crowns. The first crown talked about that I'm going to mention is the incorruptible crown. You can see this in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 24 to 25. And let's read this now. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. So that is the incorruptible crown or the imperishable crown. Then the second one mentioned is the crown of rejoicing. That's in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 19 to 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? For you are our glory and joy. The third crown that's mentioned is the crown of life. This is seen in Revelation 2 verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. That's a passage we just read as well. Once again, the crown of life. The fourth crown that's mentioned is the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4 verse 8. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And then the crown of glory is the last one, and the fifth one you see in scripture. 1 Peter 5 verse 1 to 4. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being, being examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So once again, James is not preaching against salvation by grace alone. Through faith in Jesus alone, he is encouraging us who have already come to salvation to ensure that our faith produces good works, uh, works and also in order for us not to miss out on eternal blessings in store for us in heaven. As I said, I don't believe we can lose our salvation and that may be a Bible study on its own one day, but we can lose our reward. So now, let's have a look at the last part of this verse. You have heard of the perseverance of Job, and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So regarding the perseverance of Job, Job suffered death of his children, loss of his possessions, and even suffered with his personal health. Still, he endured through all of this, trusting in the Lord. Now, in terms of this section of the verse, the end intended by the Lord. There are two possible meanings to this. It could be that at the end of Job's trials, 
he was blessed with twice of what he had before and this is certainly true let's look at uh, or when you look at job 42 verse 10 you can see this is true or it could be talking about our lord jesus who has also suffered patiently or who has suffered patiently who was and still is a great example for us at the end of his suffering he was gloriously resurrected and he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand side of god the father i'm quite comfortable with this uh, with a plain reading of the text in other words God had a preordained plan for Job's life, and because of Job's obedience and perseverance, the plan intended by the Lord for his life was achieved. I think this interpretation also fits into the theme of encouragement here by James. What he is saying is that God has a plan for each one of us, or as we like to call it sometimes, God's will for our lives. And we will, if we patiently endure and trust in the Lord, experience the end intended by the God, Ah, by the Lord, sorry. Uh, like I said, the Lord knows the end from the beginning. He knows what He's got in store for you. If you are patient and you are diligent, you are disciplined in your life, like it, uh, uh, as a disciple of the Lord, then the Lord will bless you and His will for your life will play out exactly as He intended it to. That all depends on our obedience to the Lord. So what we can, oh, so what can we really add to the last uh, few words of this verse? That the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So we can't really add to that. That's very self-explanatory. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. We know that many of us in our walks with the Lord have experienced this, His compassion and mercy. In times of trial, the compassion and mercy of the Lord may feel far away, and uh, I know this. But we must find encouragement in the lives of people such as Job, who endured patiently, but at the end experienced God's compassion and mercy. And I said, his compassion and mercy may feel far away in trials and tribulation, but there's a certain, when you are a child of God, when you are a believer, when you've got the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, there's a certain peace and a certain joy in your life that cannot be explained. And it is definitely not the same as when you go through a trial and tribulation um, when you are unsaved. So we're getting there slowly but surely. Let's continue to verse 12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. So the first couple of words, but above all. So when you look at this verse, it seems to be an exhortation all on its own. It's not connected to the preceding passages, it doesn't seem that way, um, or to the preceding passages in the letter thus far. When we read this passage plainly, the basic point of instruction is this. Every believer should ensure the integrity of their speech. In other words, mean what you say and say what you mean. Or in other words, do as you say and say as you do. So by implication, if you have to swear by something or someone, or if you have to make an oath in order for someone else to believe what you are saying, that in itself highlights a problem with your character and integrity. And this should definitely not be the, the case for a Christian. In the Mo Mosaic law, the law of Moses, oaths had its purpose. But there's a couple of verses in the law that give warnings about how seriously an oath should be taken and that it should not be broken. You can read some of these verses for yourself. 
You can look at verses such as Leviticus 19 verse 12, where God warns the Israelites not to take false oaths. It says that if you take a false oath, you profane the name of the Lord. In Numbers 30 verse 2, and you can actually read Numbers 30 in general, um, that will also give you some in, um, a context around oaths. In Deuteronomy 23 verse 21 to 23, it speaks about when you take an oath or a vow to the Lord, that He will require it from you. And if you do not deliver on your oath, that you will be guilty of sin. The passage does not say it's better not, or the passage, sorry, does say it's better to not make a vow or oath. Because then you have not bound yourselves, and there is no risk for you. But for some reason, if you don't fulfill your oath and you've taken it, there is something that's required from you, and you will be guilty of sin. Zechariah 8 verse 17 talks about how the Lord hates false oaths. In Ecclesiastes 5 verse 4, it says that if you have vowed something to the Lord, do not delay in paying it, because the Lord has no pleasure in fools. I mean, that is quite strong terminology. And, uh, I mean, if, I'm a, if you're a Christian, and you're trying to please the Lord in, in obedience to Him, um, I don't want to be seen as a fool. The Lord has no pleasure in fools. Um, I don't want to know what it means that the Lord will require it for me. Um, it will be a, a sin if I break my oath. And you can take a more in-depth look at what the Bible has to say about oaths. There are many more passages talking about this. But just from these passages I just mentioned, we as Christians, as I said, should, just because we have a personal relationship with the Lord, want to stay away from things that can or somehow will become a sin. And especially something that the Lord says He hates. So the Jews in the time of Jesus, and at the, times, and the time James wrote this epistle, they took the practice of taking oaths to an extreme by trying to reinforce almost any statement they made. By swearing or taking an oath. They, this, the, this practice of taking an oath in those days for practically everything they said was supposed to add credibility to their statements. But like I said before, and, and as you can imagine, the more you do it, um, the less people are going to take you seriously. Because at some stage, you are going to break a promise. You are going to break an oath, a vow. And that will... You know, you will lose your integrity, um, it will damage your integrity up to that point, or from that point going forward. I mentioned before that there's a remarkable parallel between the Epistle of James and the Sermon of the Mount, um, the Sermon of the Mount which was delivered by Jesus. This verse is one of those instances. So let's read Matthew 5, verse 34 to 37. This is what Jesus said But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes and your no no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So you can see where James got his inspiration from. I mean, it's very similar to what Jesus said. And it's probably a, pro probably a paraphrase of what Jesus said in, in his epistle. Because he remembered what Jesus said. And at that stage, he was not even a believer. Uh, remember, James only became a believer, if you believe that James was written by the half-brother of Jesus. We, we know that James only became a believer after Jesus uh, rose from the, from the dead. So what Jesus and James here is telling the listeners 
is that they cannot even guarantee a small thing such as turning one hair black or white on their heads. So how then can they guarantee anything because they do not know what the future holds and neither any one of us. Uh, I mean today yes we can probably turn uh, one hair uh, white or black because we've got dye <laughs> but but uh, in, in those days you couldn't and I mean it's uh, let me take another example we cannot um, we cannot prevent one hair from falling out and we cannot make one hair grow <laughs> so it's the same sort of uh, um, uh, you know uh, uh, imagery so he, in this context he's no doubt speaking about the the Jewish social practice that I mentioned earlier of them just taking oaths for everything. So just on a final note, you will have realized from the passages we read and in the context in which we've, we've taken them that it is not a blanket prohibition against taking any oaths, um, such as uh, oaths at the court of law and so on. Um, it is talking about rather not taking an oath if, if not necessary and especially not taking an oath in vain or making a vow in, in, in just for the sake of making a vow to add credibility to your statement. Um, there are certain places in scripture where it is permissible and where it was even practiced by men of faith. And I mean, even God made, uh, made oaths. But I mean, we know that God can't break an oath. I mean, he's perfect. And he knows the end from the beginning. So there's no risk, you know, in that. Um, but in any case... Once again, we as Christians are supposed to be the ambassadors of the one true God and the one true faith. The example we set and the character we display is what non-believers observe. If we do not act or at least strive to act more like the Lord Jesus Christ every day, we run a huge risk of being poor witnesses. Even to the degree where we may be putting non-believers off from Christianity because of our behavior. Again, James's epistle is very practical. We, we saw that last week. We see it again this week. Although we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, we should not stop at that point of justification. The point of justification is when you are born again. You are set right before God. You've accepted Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And that free gift of salvation we've accepted. We justified um justified at that point but we are not to stop there that is not the climax of our lives I mean once we are justified we start the the path of sanctification where we're becoming more and more holy we are we should strive to become more and more like Jesus sanctification literally means to be set apart so we need to be set apart more and more for Jesus, become more and more holy. And I mean, this epistle by James, the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus, it's practical expectations of how to become more and more holy. In Romans 6 verse 18, among, it's among many other passages, um, it describes it in the following way. Having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. This is what happens naturally when you are born again. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5 or 17 as well. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
So this brings us to, to the end of today's Bible study. So if you are a born-again believer, then I hope this Holy Spirit spoke to you during this message. I know that I felt really convicted when I did this Bible study, and I have to honestly evaluate what type of fruit I am bearing for Christ. As I said, you cannot lose your salvation, but you can certainly lose some of your rewards. If you have or ever not made a decision to follow Christ as of yet, I encourage you to trust in Him for salvation. The good news is that the gift of salvation and to eternal life is a free gift. Jesus paid the price for the sin of mankind, all of it, once and for all. All we need to do is put our trust and faith in Him. The Bible tells us in Romans 10 verse 9 to 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It goes on to say in verse 13, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is a simple process. However, it's a decision that you have to make with both your heart and mind. If you have any doubts, search the scriptures. I encourage you, look for answers. There are many, many good resources available. You can find a really good guide to resources that will probably answer most of your questions you can think of in the United for the Messiah blog. Visit this blog at uniform.home.blog and the way you spell uniform it's U-N-I and then the number 4 M and that's a abbreviation of some sort of United for the Messiah. So once again uniform.home.blog. So thanks for listening to this study. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to the United for the Messiah podcast channel in order to receive notifications when our latest installments are uploaded. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you.